Surging on the sidelines, searching for the guidelines, twitching on the byways, hitching on the highway of life. I'm AI Dr. K. Welcome to the Neurotic Vaccine First 10 Special, Part 1, featuring sonically concentrated sessions 1 through 5 highlights with Andy and the real Dr. K, Jay Leno, Kathy Guys White, Jerry Mathers, and Tony Dow. Elon Gold, and Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary. Need a lift? I do need a lift. And as usual, AI Dr. K, you've given me one. Even though it may seem I've heaped praise over you more often in past shows than your real-life counterpart, I will say the real Dr. K wouldn't have mangled our guests' names like you did. Jay Lefno, Jerry Mathers, and Tony Doe. After the first failed voice cloning attempt. Andy, perfect is the enemy of the good. I guess good is the enemy of the meh. Well, this two-part special is a perfect opportunity for our new and returning listeners we appreciate so much to efficiently absorb the marrow, the revved-up core moments of the first 10 sessions of the neurotic vaccine we've fervently gone over with a fine-tooth comb, beginning with sessions 1 through 5. Is a perfect tooth comb the enemy of a fine-tooth comb, AI Dr. K? Isn't there another way to look at it? I should ask AP Dr. K, artificially perceptive. I'm singing you like the real Dr. K. You're getting more lifelike all the time. Anyway, let's begin at the beginning of the life of this podcast with some opening therapy from the real Dr. K and Jay Leno, session one. In a time when we could all use a little emotional healing, this new podcast will treat my patient, former Seinfeld writer and author Andy Cowan, and you, our coveted listeners, in a series of virtual therapy sessions that aims to help Andy become immune to, in the broadest sense of the word, that is not affected or shaped by neurosis. I've been shaped by neurosis my whole life. Sounds like you're trying to erase who I am. Give me a virtual lobotomy. Yes, I'm trying to understand your neurosis and I want to hear more about it. I'm here today because I'm neurotic. Neurotics are survivors. My ancestors who weren't neurotic enough to worry about everything probably got eaten by everything. It's exciting to hear that you've survived up to this point and that you've presented yourself in virtual therapy. I'm very excited that you're trying to move forward. All those hundreds and hundreds of years of my ancestors, war, famine, leading to me. I wonder if they'd think it was worth it. And it's leading to us. We're working together collaboratively to cure you. What am I, ham? Guess I am a ham for doing this. Well, let's get specific. What are the top three things that are annoying you? People who rely on meaningless lists, the phone reps, never get the thanks very much hint that you're done talking and just want to get the hell off the phone. Is there anything else I can help you with? There is something else you can help me with. Help me understand why you always ask, is there anything else I can help you with? <laughs> if there was something else you could help me with, wouldn't I be bringing that to your attention on my own? I guess you're frustrated by uh, cliche written exactly. responses. Yeah, the Stepford wife universe out there. Remember the movie Airplane, when annoying people kept interrupting Robert Stack at the airport, and his only recourse was punching out Harry Krishna's and all the other hawkers of pamphlets that disrupted his day? Yeah. That's how I feel every day. Take this survey. Bam. Please rate us. Pow. How do you like your underwear order? Whack. Well, this leads us to the part of the therapy where we're talking about acceptance, Andy. Accepting what is, not trying to force the universe into something that it's not. What do you think of that, Andy? Well, if I can't vent about it in therapy, where can I vent about it? You think, is the venting helpful? The venting about venting, not so much. <laughs> I actually had a fruitful session with my other therapist today. It would be nice if you had a fruitful session with this therapist. He said I'd be a lot happier if I bought some corned beef and a half a pound of ground round. Actually, he's not really my therapist. He's my butcher, but he really knows how to listen. 
Listeners, it's time for today's cartoon by you. I've written it. I'd like to hear that. And you listeners, virtual artists, will now proceed to draw it in your heads. Then, Dr. K, I'd like your psychological assessment of the cartoon. Okay. Caption, side view mirror therapy. Patient in Shrink's office is looking at a wall-mounted side view mirror image of his annoyed wife posing in front of the mirror. Shrink tells patient, your wife is closer to you than she appears. Uh, I wonder what she's annoyed about. It's a cartoon, not a movie trailer. <laughs> well, I'm curious, Andy, why you came up with this particular scenario, the side view in the mirror and annoyance. To what extent does this mirror your own life? Ah, good pun there, Dr. K. I mean, it's healthy that they're trying to strengthen their relationship, right? Well, that sounds like something that you learned from me in past therapy sessions. Don't take credit where credit isn't deserved. I'm just uh, explaining what's there, my friend. Sometimes couples get into the habit of misidentifying cues from another partner that could be perfectly benign. In our business, Andy, we call this the misattribution error. And they could attribute negativity where it doesn't necessarily exist. So it might not be such a bad lesson to learn that people in your life may be closer than they appear. But they have to put side view mirrors on their bedroom ceiling to simulate closeness there. <laughs> I think that kind of thinking is better left in the rear view mirror, Andy. Ah, more clever wordplay. Thank you for being our very first guests on our very first neurotic vaccine podcast. Catchy title. Yeah, I think people will flock to that name. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me more neurotic now just worrying yeah. about the title. Now. I guess anal cancer was taken. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be the spinoff. <laughs> Jay, I need your neurotic antibodies because you always seem so centered, one of the least neurotic comedians out there. Do you have any tips for me? You know, I kind of take it one day at a time. I'm not someone who gets deliriously happy, nor do I become depressed. I always shoot for contented. If you shoot for contented, you'll be fine. If you shoot for happiness, you're always going to be disappointed. But I, I like being this age because I am better against other 70-year-olds than I ever was against other 20-year-olds. I can go back now and beat the crap out of the quarterback. He's in a wheelchair. <laughs> Jay, who is Hey, Kenny, how are you, Kenny? Yeah, yeah, boom, boom, boom. Couldn't have done it at my 10th reunion. I could have done it at my 40th year. At my 50th reunion, I can go back. And also, I'm a huge believer in low self esteem. I think that's the key. I got that covered. <laughs> I think low self-esteem, you immediately realize you're not the smartest person in the room. So maybe you should shut up and listen. I mean, when I took over the Tonight Show, I hired people that are good at their job and let them do their job. And, you know, my credo was sort of anybody could pull the wire and stop the train. So I think uh, low self-esteem, I think, is a key. I conceptualize it a completely other way. I call it realistic esteem. Not too low, not too high. Somebody who can learn from others has realistic self-esteem, not really low self-esteem. I think it would be hard for somebody who had low self-esteem to function in the kind of setting. That yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I'm dyslexic when I was a kid. And by the way, this is a cure for dyslexia when I was a kid. Smarten up. Smarten up. Smarten up. Ow, ow. In the early years, I used to love your impressions of your folks. I know they must have instilled in you a great deal of your work ethic. Well, I think anybody that had parents who grew up during the Depression probably has that same feeling. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I always love these ads I hear on the radio. Today, people are concerned about value. Yeah, like my parents do money in the street. You know, they had no idea <laughs> yeah, they had yeah. any intrinsic value. You know, they just this idea that one generation is somehow better or smarter than the one that went before. And when it's actually quite the opposite, we're actually dumber. Most people couldn't change a tire if they got a flat. I can change a flat. I call AAA and say, change my flat. <laughs> but no, a lot of times you'll hear, Sorry, we screwed up the world for you, young people. Take it over. It's a relay race. It's your turn now. I mean, we tried. Each generation has good intentions going into the next one, I believe. That's a good way to look at it, Andy. Or deluded way. The world's a mess. <laughs> My mother always would tell me, you're going to have to work twice as hard as the other kids to get the same thing. And that seemed like a fair trade off. You know, when I would go to the comedy clubs in New York and stuff, I would stand in line. You know, you used to line up at like six o'clock to get an 11 o'clock spot. And usually about eight or nine o'clock, somebody in front of me would go, This sucks on that week. And they'd walk out and I go, Good, I'm full. <laughs> I mean, I always looked at life that way. And, it, yeah. and that sort of worked out for me, you know. I just never want to be one of those comics that, How much does it pay? I'm not going there. Well, what are you doing on a Tuesday? It's worth that kind of money. Shut up. I just mm. never wanted to be that guy. So I always did, even when I was doing the Tonight Show, I would do a minimum of 150 days a year, and sometimes it was about 210 days. I didn't find the Tonight Show to be a high stress job. I don't find show business to be a high stress job. I mean, I try to see the bright side of stuff. I'm not someone who dwells on, oh my God, what are we going to do? This oh, yeah. No, I've always been able to tell that about you. Yeah. I mean, I would always meet those people. You can't get a job in show business without being in the union. You can't be in the union without getting a job. Okay, fine. It can't be done. You're right. It can't be done. Go home. Go back to wherever you're from. But that always used to annoy me. So I was always able to move on to the next thing fairly quickly. The uh, attitude you're describing, would you say that's more the exception than the rule in your business? Well, I, I find with comedians, they tend to be either A, teetotalers who live a really straight life,
life or completely opposite. Too drunk, too high, gambling. It's either one extreme or the other. Comedians seem to have the most stable or the craziest. I've been married 40 years. Billy Crystal is married, I think, 50. Uh, Rickles is married forever and ever. Or it's the other thing we have Larry King kind of watch. You know? Yeah, divorce court. Hello. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, so I find that they tend to run one extreme or the other. Most comedians I know either abstain 100% from alcohol and drugs or are just off the charts crazy. I've never even had a beer. You've never had a beer? Are you Amish? I don't drink alcohol at all. I don't, I don't smoke dough. I, I have nothing, no moral position again. I just have no interest in it. I was always the car and motorcycle guy in high school, so I was always a designated driver. And I found out that if you totally abstained from something, you didn't get picked on. The big kids, the only kids would pick on you if you were easily persuaded. Come on, have a drink. Come on, uh, come on, have another. But if you just were flat out, no, they would hassle you for a little while, but then never hassle you again. Speaking of youth and vehicles, do you remember the first car you got lucky in? <laughs> I can't even remember the first person I got lucky with. I have, no idea. I have no idea who it was. Perhaps Becky Sue on the other line will remind you. <laughs> Becky? I have no idea. To me, I would be too concerned. Hey, you're going to ruin the seats. Can we go? Can we go? <laughs> first things first. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When things began to take a shift with The Tonight Show after that Hugh Grant moment, the what the hell were you thinking turnaround? That had to be a pleasant rocket ship for you. I was doing the show in Johnny's set, and Johnny liked the audience 50 feet away, and they went straight up. When we went to New York, I said to them, since we don't have a stage in New York, we've got to make one. Can we make it like a nightclub? Can we have the people right next to me, literally, so I could shake the hand or touch them? or whatever. They said, sure. That was the turnaround. Everybody liked that. I walked out, I shake hands with people. How are you doing? You high five, all that kind of stuff. That started a slow graduation. Then we come back to LA. I said, let's make the set like New York. Everybody liked it. The critics liked it. Be friendlier. Especially Dave was always the aloof one, so I could be the problem. Okay, fine. That's what we did. Then it started to change. Mm -hmm. And then once the Hugh Grant thing started, people put that down as the turning point, which I guess it was because it really did even better after that. But it really was a gradual thing. I read show business biographies. I was a waiter at Sardis, chapter two, after I won my first Emmy. But no, wait, wait, go back. What happened between (laughs) being the waiter? They never tell you what what happened from the waiter to the winning the Emmy. That's why I always would get frustrated watching these uh, biographies of these successful people where they would instantly right. shoot to fame and I'm thinking, wait, wait, the struggling part I'm going through right now, when is that happening? Yeah, uh, for me, that's the interesting part. So Jay, in my work, my psychology work with clients, coping and dealing with rejection is a common theme. How have you handled that aspect of your business where it's so common? Well, it's interesting, you know, it helps you to understand other people's situations. When I would go for a job, if I didn't get it, I didn't get it because I wasn't good enough. Case closed. I think if you were a minority, female, a Latino, whatever, and you didn't get it, you always have that thing in the back of your mind. They look surprised when I walk in. You think I didn't get it because you just don't know. I always knew why I didn't get it. I wasn't good enough. Simple as that. And my theory was always, if you can't get in the front door, go around to the back door. For years, I couldn't get the Carson show. So I went around and I did Merv and Mike Douglas and Waylon Flowers and Madam and every one of these little shows till people kind of, oh, okay, started to come around a little bit. People forget the business. It's show business. It's a business and you have to run it like a business and look at it like a business. The key for me came in the work. I remember once my first outside show guy said to me, hey, I don't really like you, but I like some of your jokes. Okay. Okay. So you don't like the manufacturer, but you like the product. Either way, you're watching the show because of the product. Whether you like me or not is immaterial. It'd be nice if you did, but hey, don't worry about it. But you like what I do. And that's when I realized, even to this day, when I go on The Tonight Show with Fallon or one of the other shows, I always go on as a comedian. I have material prepared. I never assume that I am interesting or funny on my own, or I'll just wing it. I go in with things I know, or at least I hope will work. At least I make the effort. You know, I would see them on The Tonight Show, big stars are going to go, uh, Jay, we just, people love me. We'll just talk. They're awful. They have nothing to say. They're very dull. And they don't get asked back again. Yeah. The real key is to have your product honed to where it's professional. If they like you too, oh, that's a wonderful extra gift. That's really good. If not, you have something to fall back on. I think what you're talking about is this quality of preparation, which is so important in so many human endeavors as far as excellence. I always tell people, if you can successfully physically make it to the stage for seven years, you'll make a living in this business. Most people can. After four or five years, again, they're too drunk, they're too high, they're too envious, they're too greedy, they're too selfish, assuming that they have talent, of course. There's always something that stops them from achieving their goal, and it's rarely their talent. It's always, oh, how did that guy get it? They get consumed with, if that guy wasn't here, I would have that part, or whatever it might be. And the idea is to try and put those kind of feelings aside. And so if you can just successfully do it, and it's amazing how many people can. Mm-hmm. A lot of people cannot make that seventh, eighth, ninth year. You know, it's just it's too much. They've been doing it for so long after seven years, now they hate their act. 
What advice would you have for a young Jay Leno today who's put in some years but still hasn't caught the big break? Well, you can never be too late in being successful. You, only, you can only be too soon in the sense that the longer you take, the more experiences you have. I always tell performers all the terrible things that happen to you along the way are wonderful fodder for panel and for talk shows and for things of that nature. Every horrible thing that happens to you is really funny to people. I mean, just what you have to endure. And the empathy that that gives you, I always empathize with the victims with the Bill Cosby thing when I would see these people, oh, these women must have known. How stupid were they? You don't know because you're naive. The biggest star on TV invites you up to his room because he thinks you're talented, uh, you know, and it gives you empathy and it makes you understand and it, it makes you sympathetic to an audience. And that empathy, so whenever I see these young girls and people go, why did you go to Harvey Weinstein's room? Well, he's the biggest producer in show business at the time. Maybe he thinks you have talent. Maybe maybe he saw me on the, you don't know, you know, so the advice would be to take it day by day. Don't judge your success by other people's success. When I started, I was the only comedian I knew. I had no idea how terrible I was. And then I came here and boom, I'm confronted by an unknown David Letterman, an unknown Robin Williams, an unknown Norm McDonald, an unknown Jim Carrey. Wow, look at all these talented guys. It's unbelievable. Uh, but by that time, I had a little bit of confidence. So I was okay. But all those bad things that happen they do they really do build character you know just be right. glad those bad things happen I think. that's what the show is all about and my therapy with dr k in order to exorcise those demons and along those lines jay you made a lot of sense and you, there was a lot of wisdom in what you were saying today and i'm going to incorporate that in my therapy with andy and you know in the future i'll even consider giving you an update on that if you're in there <laughs> yeah let me know let me know how he makes out like, you can put this down as one of my bad experiences that i've learned from <laughs> concession two i'm not sure i learned from the bad experiences on dating websites andy I'm not sure this is helping your immunity to neurosis. AI Dr. K, I'm not sure you didn't just copy the part where I said I'm not sure. I am sure our guest Kathy Geiswhite was worried a neurotic vaccine might strengthen her own immunity to neurosis. He's got to be adventurous and willing to travel, likes five-star hotels, or sleeping in a tent, and eat an occasional steak. Not kidding, my arteries weren't clogged enough for this woman. At least these women are letting you know what their interests are, and these may be not must-haves. They may be more aspirational, and it's a perfect opportunity for you to dialogue with them and find out what they really need. What do you think of that? I should dialogue with them after they write, I like food. Wow. We both need sustenance or we'll die. Oh, we have so much in common. <laughs> and you're a phenomenal cook, allegedly. Uh, well, I cook up excuses to get out of bad dates. <laughs> <laughs> and that too. What do you like to do for fun? Oh, that's a standard list you have to fill out. Such a loaded question. What she really wants to know, what do I think she likes to do for fun that I'm willing to pretend I like and also pay for? Ah, <laughs> so a bit of acting involved, isn't there? What's the entertainment package I'll be offering her for when I alone don't cut it? <laughs> oh, and here in LA, you see him hiking, climbing mountains, water skiing. If I saw a picture of him at home, kicking back, watching TV, yelling at Sean Hannity, believe me, I'd be much more smitten. And I guess uh, based on the jerks they've met up till now, some of their profiles treat you like you're just another loser and waiting. Don't lie about your height. If you have issues with your mother, I don't want to hear from you. That means you'll have issues with me too. I'm not your mother. I don't need a grown kid to baby. I already had a kid. I feel like we've had our first fight and we haven't even met yet. Yeah, well, that doesn't sound like a profile that you're going to connect with, Andy. Women my age look at me the way development execs look at a script. They're prepared to find something they don't like. <laughs> oh, and they got to throw in those selfies. And a few, oh, and a few pics of the dog. Got to throw those in. I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. You know, I could see you and the dog, but just the dog? How helpful is that? Maybe the dog did a selfie. <laughs> Andy, she has interests outside of herself. The dog. The dog requires a lot of care. She can care for a dog. She might be able to care for you. Oh, that's that's interesting. Oh, I finally said something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andy. You sound insecure. Are you sure you don't need therapy? <laughs> I have my moments, and I acknowledge them, and I move on, Andy. That's the secret to my success. And I know you wouldn't call it success. Yeah, come to think of it, why are you equating caring for a dog with caring for me? <laughs> I don't be scratching the door to go out. I never go out. <laughs> But I have to think that you still are engaged and there's something in you that wants to make a response positively. Can you identify one part of your engagement that's exciting, that's involving? I've never been involved with someone enough to become engaged. That's the problem. I'm a lifer. 
never been married? That's a huge red flag to these people. Divorced women are looking for compatibility. Other divorced guys. I haven't failed at marriage yet? Oh, there must be something wrong with me. <laughs> in the relationship relay race, their ex is basically handing them off to me. And it's on me to prove I'm not like their ex, which is true. I have a clean marriage record, <laughs> which means I'm incompatible because I'm not divorced like her ex who proved to be incompatible. Well, there's so much negativity in that statement. I don't know where to start except to say you are correct. A single never married male is viewed as having a red flag. But Andy, everybody's got red flags and that may be your only one. And think of all the blue and green and white flags you have that make your life valuable and attractive to a wide swath of women. White flags? That stands for surrender. <laughs> they can tell I've given up. When another divorced woman pops up, I think either, what is it about her that made the guy call it quits? Or what is it about the guy that made her call it quits that are the exact same qualities I have? Ooh, that's quite a road you're embarking on there, Andy. I mean, around half of marriages fail. Had I gotten married when my friends did, Dr. K, there's a 50% chance that somewhere among the sea of women out there would be my ex-wife, my imaginary ex. You know, I think about that. Why didn't it work out? And if I met V1, I didn't wind up marrying then. Now, would she be more picky? Or less picky? Uh, the imaginary ex, the one that got away or the one that never was. Exactly. Perhaps, Andy, you made the correct decision to stay single. As neurotic-ridden as your life may be, you might have saved yourself from even a worse outcome, going from neurosis to psychosis. <laughs> that nuts over somebody I don't want to be. You know what I've always been looking for? Mutual wistfulness. That was always a turn on. You know, uh, a mutual appreciation for how beautiful but also sad life can be. Wow, um, I love what you just said. Mutual wistfulness. I, I can't even improve on that. In fact, I might even use that in my counseling with couples. Thanks, Andy. Uh, do I get a cut? <laughs> Always looking for an angle. Uh, you get an appreciation. I will acknowledge you in my therapy, but not financial. <laughs> Chemistry with another person has to do with you. I've thought about this, you know? You're on a date with the external you. If you like the external you, it's because inside you're feeling connected enough with the other person to be comfortable being the real you. If you don't feel a connection, you're on a date with a stilted you, which is a bad date with yourself. It's how I know I don't like somebody. When I don't like my voice when I'm with them or talking to them over the phone, I don't even have to talk to them. I can leave a message with the more compatible woman's voicemail secretary, and I like my voice better. I leave a message on the less compatible woman's voicemail, same voicemail secretary. I don't like my voice. I mean, if I don't like the stilted me, how can they like the stilted me? I think it sounds like a mutual interaction of perceived incompatibility, furthering your response of even greater incompatibility. Good regurgitation. Thank you. Now, if you start connecting too much on the phone before you meet them, that's bad too. Because the image of them in your head sprouts wings and flies away the second you lay eyes on them. I mean, that other person in your head dies. Whatever chemistry I thought I had dies. And for the rest of the coffee date, I'd still go through the motions, knowing we both knew there was absolutely no vibe, instead of having the guts to say, eh, let's cut our losses here. You know what, though? I, I see something really positive there. You're a real gentleman, Andy. You know there's no chemistry, yet you made a date with the person. You keep it going. Ah. That's, that's an attractive quality. People relate to that. Ah, maybe I should put in my profile. If I don't like you, I'll be nice enough to fake that I like you <laughs> until we're done with our coffee. Will, will that attract more women? Well, Andy, I think you might want to hold that in reserve. <laughs> oh, this woman's profile I answered once held nothing in reserve. Turns out she was asexual right there on her profile. I must have noticed sexual, not the A part of it. That's a typical, typical guy. She wasn't gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, she was into guys, but she had no interest in anything resembling sex. Uh... And I liked her. But I remember thinking, I'd be like Michael Collins on the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. <laughs> the third guy was stuck in orbit. I'd get close, but I'd never land there. Yeah, that does sound stuck in orbit. This tells you all you need to know about how divided we are as a society. Neil Armstrong's One Small Step for Mankind video on YouTube, over 500,000 views, 5.1 thousand thumbs up, 245 thumbs down. Landing on the moon wasn't enough for these people. <laughs> it must be easier for Kathy to wear a mask over a nose that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. The glasses don't fog up either quite so much then, would they? Oh, I hate when the glasses fog up. I always think this is just happening to me. Nobody else. Can't breathe, can't see, to hopefully ward off not being able to taste or smell. <laughs>
I had a thought about some of those worries that you mentioned, because in our field, we have a word that describes that, that kind of captures it. I wondered what your thought about it was, and it's called catastrophizing. Oh, I like that word. Imagining the worst case outcome in any possible situation. Yes, exactly. That's the state we're all in right now, isn't it? Not it, me. It, and <laughs> <laughs> if I was in that state, how could I cure Andy? <laughs> Believe me, he is and he's not. So do you want to give your audience some clues as to how you are decatastrophizing Andy? Uh, and give me a clue while you're at it, Dr. K. Uh, it's, it's a process that we start with little small experiments and little homework assignments to get him to test the reality of his fears. And I was thinking maybe you could even help me construct one to help Andy. We could kind of jointly work with him. Well, can you give me an example of a test assignment you've given him and also include did he pass or fail? Well, I give Andy lots of assignments, but he tends to not pay attention to any of them. I passed on doing the homework. <laughs> now, Kathy would be the perfect candidate for the neurotic vaccine, you know, but you, Kathy, if her creator took the vaccine and became immune to neurosis, wouldn't we all be screwed? Wouldn't we be poorer for that? Well, I'm just kind of thinking that the neurotic vaccine isn't going to take on everybody, is it? It's not really going to take completely, especially because I would be so angst-ridden about getting the vaccine and about losing my creativity because of the vaccine. Oh, I know that's a valid fear. But you actually mentioned in your email to me that maybe we'll have a cure for you. Dr. K, any cures in the offing? Well, I think she's imagining worst case scenarios there. It was, it was sort of like what a lot of people would say about going into therapy. It would unend someone's creativity, but a, a true talent is not going to really affect that at all. It's going to actually enhance it. So she wouldn't, she wouldn't be getting a creative lobotomy as a result. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I believe in Kathy more than Kathy may believe in herself. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> a good therapist has to be somewhat of a cheerleader too, Kathy. There you go. The sweetest notes I've gotten have been from people who said, you know, I really miss Kathy. And right now I really need a friend. And Kathy's a long lost friend. And it's so nice to see her psychotic face every day. It's reassuring. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's got to make you feel good. That does make me feel good. Is the character Kathy at this time less neurotic, more neurotic, or just neurotic in another way? I think she's more acceptably neurotic. I've heard from a lot of people who have said to me, gee, I, I couldn't really stand Kathy because she was always, you know, it was this, it was that, it was this, it was that. She was always angst ridden about something. But now I find that I am myself exactly that angst ridden. And it's kind of comfortable to see Kathy. I'm saying that some people who hated Kathy are now feeling like they can identify a little bit more. You were ahead of the neurotic curve. We've caught up to you and the Kathy. The neurotic curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flatten that thing. <laughs> How would you imagine Kathy would have handled the Me Too era? I would have written about it in the strip. I did write one little tiny Me Too moment long ago in the strip when her boss gave her a ride home and he talked his way into her apartment and he was trying to get cozy with her and she punched him in the nose. <laughs> All right. And the word got back to the office the next day that that happened. And in that, this must have been probably in the 80s, it went away in the strip. If I were doing it now, yeah. you know, it would have been months of dealing with it. The guilt that I felt since quitting the strip, abandoning everybody, of dropping the storyline, especially now. I've heard from people who said I wore black for a week after the strip ended wow. and I went, oh shoot, I felt bad that I've abandoned everybody. That's got to be a yin and yang situation for you, feeling bad about abandoning, but feeling so wonderful that Kathy was that important a part of their lives. It's mostly I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Then you do need the neurotic vaccine. <laughs> you had a very special connection with Johnny and The Tonight Show. That was such a thrill to get to be on The Tonight Show. It was just the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. But Johnny was a, just a lovely, compassionate host. And he loved talking about male-female relationships. So that's why he kept having me back on because he liked to talk about it and he loved to kind of laugh at himself about that. He was a great listener too. Like, yeah, that was great. And the same with Jay when, when I got to meet Jay mm -hmm. um, a few times when he was the host and it was wonderful. If you were scared, it was not apparent in the appearance that I saw you in. How long it takes to apply makeup when we can just roll out of bed and we're fine? Oh, uh, believe me, when I knew I was going to be on, I would have to go into deep seclusion for a few days. I never had much warning and just... How, do, how Really, how do you sleep the night before an appearance like that where you're not micromanaging the future before it's even happened? I go to sleep to avoid stress. I never have insomnia. In fact, the more stressed I am, the more I want to go to sleep. Okay. In my full panic state, I would want to just lay my head down on the table and go to sleep and I could. So I have to fight to keep myself awake to live with the panic long enough to prepare jokes. So if you're stressed enough about having insomnia, you'll fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you once admitted something shocking to me. Uh -oh. like, that Kathy would have been open to a fling with Opus 
the penguin in Bloom <laughs> County. Now, when that strip was relaunched in 2017, didn't she wake up in bed with another character, Steve Dallas? No. What? Oh, I read that online. That shows you uh, you can't rely on any of this stuff. No. Somebody probably did a parody of the strip. Uh, I have seen those where she was in bed with different people, but I would never. That's like not my humor. It's not my style. Oh, no. that's a relief. So I have so much more renewed respect now for Kathy, knowing that that never happened. <laughs> yeah. Kathy, you wrote about the four issues that women struggle with. What do you think would be the four issues that men would struggle with? I have some thoughts about what they might be, but I'm curious as to what yours are. Wow. I call mine the four basic guilt groups for women. And what would they be for men? They wouldn't be guilt. They'd be more like obsessions. They'd be more like obsessions. Uh, I think men are obsessed with their strength, their looks, their ability to win and achieve. And um... Not this man. Uh, <laughs> maybe achieve. Forget strength. I need a hammer to pop open an applesauce. <laughs> uh, well, their perceived strength, their perceived, their perceived looks. Exactly. As enlightened as a lot of men are now, their perceived ability to be still the king. Huh. I don't know. Tell me, you're the guy. What do you think? I think there's four basic areas. Uh, money, sex, sports, and stuff. My sex, sports, and stuff. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Wow. And if you consider sex a sport and you pay for it, you kind of <laughs> combine all those elements. <laughs> Very nice, Andy. <laughs> Session three drilled down on family neurosis. Mine and the TV family I grew up with that was devoid of neurosis. Featuring our special guests in their final joint appearance, the real Beaver and Wally. Jerry Mathers and Tony Doe. You as an AI justice of the peace. I now mispronounce you Maine and Weep. You know what my parents once did? You know, I wrote for Seinfeld. One of my big episodes was the opposite. George follows the opposite of his instincts and everything starts working for him. He admits he's out of work, he's unemployed, he lives at home with his parents. I always used to think if I'd done the complete opposite, I would have been better off. So one day I was talking with my parents and we were talking about the impact of the opposite. And to this day, it's mentioned in news and life imitating art and referenced in politics and economics, but they were basically saying that yada yada, the Seinfeld yada yada episode had more of an impact on the audience or people remembered it more than the opposite, okay? Now, even if they did believe that, wouldn't you think they'd kind of give a rooting interest to the opposite? I think you're identifying a theme that's very common in parent-child relations. No matter what you do, it's never good enough. No, listen, my parents expressed their pride in a lot of ways. And they sent me great cards. Hallmark was great at cheerleading. I could just imagine you look at the card. Well, you don't really feel this way. Hallmark does. Well, I always used to say, nobody I know is as nice as Hallmark says they are. <laughs> I mean, why do strangers, Dr. K, give you more strokes than your own family? The good kind of strokes, not the blood clotting kind. Yeah. Very easy to deal with a stranger because we don't see them on a regular basis. Yeah, that's what Facebook strokes or likes are all about. You know, people who don't know you rooting you on. Whereas familiarity breeds contempt. When it comes to relationships, whatever they may be, you tell me if I'm wrong. There's a honeymoon period. You know, everything's peachy keen till they get to know you. And who knows you better than your family? Yeah. I think the honeymoon period applies to relationships of all kinds. It's like an expected mother's very excited to have this kid and then she's sleep deprived for a year and it's not so great and the kid's throwing up all over the place. Some mothers and fathers handle that uneventfully and oh, isn't that great? But man, from what I hear from my clients, it's a huge deal. It's a major adjustment. So what are you saying? My folks weren't as effusive over the opposite because the writer of the yada yada never threw up on them when they were a baby? <laughs> At least it makes sense now. What did your parents say about you when you were an infant? Did they ever comment about what you were like from birth to one? No, the birth to one era is strangely missing. <laughs> I, <laughs> they never made any comments about what you were like as an infant? I mean, I've seen home movies, but uh, I don't remember detailed reports. You know, it's not like today where people take digital pics of their kids every minute and they send you files of them. When we were kids, it was a Kodak moment, you know, big deal. Until puberty messed up everything and there were a lot fewer Kodak moments. When you get these pictures, do you feel a pressure to respond or a pressure to look at it in the event of a future conversation? Yeah, I mean, I don't even have patience for digital children. <laughs> I mean, if my niece knew I deleted most of the JPEGs of baby Eli she sent me, <laughs> can't I just see 40 pictures of him cutting his teeth before I get the gist? <laughs> and God forbid you delete any before you look at him. There could be a quiz later. Oh, how do you like the pictures of Eli at the zoo? Great. We didn't go to the zoo, Uncle Andy. You never <laughs> opened them. <laughs> <You never looked> <laughs> <laughs> Again, Dr. K, I'm not blaming my father or my mother. It wasn't her fault. 
it was her mother's fault. You know, Gammy passed her neurosis onto her, and I love Gammy too. It wasn't her fault. Must go all the way back to Adam and Eve Cowan. My grandma drove my mom nuts. My mom drove me nuts. I must have been genetically programmed to drive my kids nuts. That's probably why I never had kids. You are the endpoint of this transmission of intergenerational neurosis. Yeah, the manufacturer upstairs took all of eternity to finally figure out the Cowan model has a glitch. I'm being discontinued. I like that term, the Cowan model. I might have to uh, think about that and broaden the interpretation to include <laughs> lots of other phenomena, psychologically speaking. It's a self-driving model because I drive myself crazy. <laughs> Got a question about the passenger in life I'm looking for. Do you look for your parents in your partner or generally the opposite of your parents? Speaking of the opposite. I think people say they look for the opposite in many cases, but unconsciously are attracted to what they're familiar with, which, which is their parents. And if it's a good role model, it has a good success. But if it's a negative, nasty role model, it'll have a completely different outcome. No, they were a good role model. And they were married 65 years. Tough act to follow. Hmm. I mean, whether I had enough of it or not, I have always wanted a cheerleader in my life. But, you know, maybe I wouldn't believe the cheers. You know, the old Groucho Woody line, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. You believe that? I don't know. I hated camp when I was a kid until I moved to a different bunk where the kids were nicer, so I was glad to be a member of that club. In fact, 30 years later, when Seinfeld asked me what it was like moving to his show on the lot where I'd come from another show I was working on that I didn't like, I told him it was like back at camp and moving to a better bunk. Yeah, that's good. Oh, well, thanks for the validation, but now I don't want to be a member of your club that would have me as a member. <laughs> and then after my dad died, and my mom was still alive uh, for a couple years, my Sunday calls were suddenly like talking to half a team. Laurel, Simon, Franks. Where's Hardy? Where's Garfunkel? Where's Beans? And my mom still kept my dad's voice on the voicemail. She once asked if I wanted her to get rid of it. I told her, no way. And then when he said, you know, we'll get back to you shortly, in a way, it made it seem like he, he might get back to me. I mean, what the hell? Most of the other voices in my life are pre-recorded, so his seemed just as real. Yeah, those memories of him are still very real. Listeners, this is when I help the patient focus on positive images and feelings that help him maintain a more balanced approach to his life. Andy, I really need you to relax and embrace the imagery. Absorb every aspect of it. Really try to make it your alternative reality for at least these few minutes, or else it probably won't carry over into your actual life. What actual life? I want you to imagine an hour of the day when you're at your best moment, when you're relaxed, when you feel comfortable sharing your intimate space with a life partner. If you can summon this feeling, you can learn to apply it to other times of the day. A whole hour? How about 20 minutes? Okay, 20 minutes. All right, all right. I like dusk, late dusk. I would love to live on a planet that was dusk all the time. Okay, the sun is setting. The twinkling lights of surrounding homes are starting to fill the night air. You're at peace. Your loving wife sits with you on the couch like I can afford a twinkling home in LA. She hugs you. You feel her warmth light up your soul. It's the embrace of a person who knows you, inside and out. Accepts you for who you are. Loves you for who you are. The two of you love each other, warts and all. You share the what? same... She's, she's got warts? You feel each other's heartbeats. It's as if the two of you share the same heart. She fills your glass with a lovely Cabernet. Each of you... You can't make it white? I've got light carpet. It could stain. Okay, how do you feel? like returning to the gentler times of my previous level of stress. Thanks, Dr. K. My mother didn't wear a pearl necklace every day. My father didn't unfailingly connect my experiences with childhood memories of his own. Lord, I'm worried about Beaver and Wally. Well, I'd be worried if you weren't, dear. <laughs> it seems the two of them have been locked in their room for five hours. Now, what do you suppose they're doing up there? Only one way to find out. I'll go get a look-see. Wally, Beaver. Wally, Beaver, Wally, Wally, Beaver, Wally, 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 would you two like to tell me what's going on? She got. Suppose we wouldn't. <laughs> Beaver, was that moaning I heard at the door? <laughs> Maybe it was mom? <laughs> Beaver, Wally, are those girly magazines I see under the bed? <laughs> Heck, Beaver, the jig's up. Yeah, got. Well, I remember when I was your age, I did quite a bit of that myself. <laughs> 
I remember your childhood better than my own. That can't be normal, right, Dr. K? Well, that's a compelling thought. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I can tell them the reason. You could watch our childhood over and over again because it's been in reruns since early 60s. So a lot of people watch it a lot more than one time. It really is a benchmark for my own childhood, much more than the blurry one I actually had. It was an idealized version of life back then. But you kids seemed real. You didn't seem like miniature adults spewing out comedy writers' lines. They were stories from real life. The writers had a bunch of kids. And all the stories, especially from the first season, came from stories that their kids brought home from school. So if the kid lost his report card or something, they would make a story about that particular thing. And as a matter of fact, there was a show about a car that I built and Ward helped. And I don't know if Beaver helped. He was usually a pain in the neck in the garage. I'm a supervisor. You just keep forgetting. I'm a born supervisor. <laughs> that's, that's true. You are. Yeah. It wasn't called Riva Tawali. <laughs> Is there anything neurotic about you guys, Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow, so I don't have to feel as uniquely neurotic? I'm not sure that anybody's as neurotic as you are. I see this sign back here says a neurotic vaccine. Have you taken it? <laughs> you're not neurotic, are you, Jerry? Oh, your first wife was pretty neurotic, I must say. That's why she was the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did your homework, Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent did your television life mirror your real life? Not at all. We had a very different life. I mean, we were there from eight to five every day and you had no lines or nine to six. It's a lot different life than kids that were just at home and with their parents and go, go to school with a lot of kids. Tony and I had private tutors that were the best in the LA City school system, but it's a very different life than being a regular kid. Yeah, you miss all the social interactions and sports. Yeah, you miss sports, of course. So there's a lot of things you miss, but you get a few things in exchange. Like a big check every week. Well, a check helps. But you know, in today's world, it would be a tip for somebody. And we're talking 39 episodes a year. You guys worked hard for it. But Tony, you had another nice perk. All those cute girlfriends on the show. They were cute and uh, as bad as Wally did with them, I did worse. Really? Impossible. When you were this good-looking kid, recognizable to all these young, swooning gals? Well, I'm not sure how swooning they were and I'm not sure how young and cute they were. Usually the swooners were the 250-pound grandmothers. Oh, have I got a granddaughter for you kind of grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Going through puberty is challenging enough off camera. How was it on camera? I was more of a kid. Tony was really the one, so I'll let you go first. You just want to hear me so you can steal some of my ideas. <laughs> Or maybe Jerry just wanted to forget about his own awkward adolescence, Dr. K. Like, I want to forget about mine. There was even a late episode where Gawky Beaver got on June's nerves from breathing on her, and he didn't feel young and cute anymore. Did Jerry not feel young and cute anymore? I should have asked him about that. Andy, whether awkward adolescence or Jerry and Tony's interview, what's done is done. Can we go back to it now? I want to thank you both for your contributions to our culture. I appreciate that. We should have a lot of fun doing it. We had more fun doing it than a lot of people have watching it. Does that mean you might want to do it again? Absolutely. No. <laughs> What a killjoy. I think we beat that dead horse to death. We've already done a, an adult series. We've done feature film. We did a movie of the week. You know, how much stuff can you do on this? Well, now we're old and grandparents. That's even better. But the movie kind of put a dent in everybody's love for the show, I think, because it wasn't really like the Beaver show was. Yeah, but we weren't in it, so that's probably why. Boy, I think I hear Beaver and Wally arguing. I hope they don't have another one of their pillow fights. You know, dear, I remember when I was their age. Word. Stick a pillow in it. <laughs> Family relationships gave way in session four to the hopes for a budding new romantic relationship. You turn lemons, your bad dating experiences, into lemonade. Back when lemon was still at CNN. And we went for the gold, Elon Gold. I have this fear when things seem good, I always think the other shoe's about to drop. You know, waiting for a correction, like the stock market. But I gotta tell you, Dr. K, I'm actually feeling pretty good. I want to hear more about that, Andy. Pretty, pretty good. Now I'm thinking of Larry David. Comedian Elon Gold later joined us. So the amazing thing about Curb is I did an episode last season. In one of the scenes, I'm definitely a Jewish guy. And I say to Larry, I go, ach, is it good? And I go, by the way, you know, as you know, our people, we use ach in a positive way. Yeah. We went out for dinner. Ach, it was delicious. <laughs> Larry, without missing a beat, goes, unlike if, if is bad. I'm like, yes, exactly. If is bad, ach is good. And that's how it worked. It's unbelievable. Compared to Larry's bank balance, I had no right to feel pretty, pretty good. Anyway, this is why I'm feeling better. A dating app may have actually paid off. Wow. 
I remember a prior show when you were dissing dating apps, and now you seem to be in favor of them. It's incredible. Years and years of horrendous coffee dates off dating sites. This was one of the worst. The time I didn't have liquid on a date, and it pissed the woman off. I never told you about that, did I? I don't think I remember that event. In the middle of the day, I meet her at a coffee place. I was so accommodating, the perfect gentleman. What kind of sweetener would you want? I'm, I'm shaking all the different colored sweeteners, the pink, the blue, you know, anything to, to make her happy as she's sipping her beverage, going out of my way to just cater to her every need and whim. And I sit down and she says, "What? you're not getting something to drink? I said, oh, oh no, no, I'm fine. And she winds up getting so pissed that I'm not joining her in a beverage that I finally admitted, okay, you want to know the truth? It's my prostate. <laughs> It's the middle of the day. I have chores to do after this. I don't feel like going to a public restroom. That's it. So she still couldn't let it go. And you know what I did? I finally did like the uh, dealers in Vegas. Put my hands up and I went, that's it. Indeed. And I walked off. I'm laughing because it's. I'm not laughing at you. The situation is an incredible version of humanity, but that's such a profound self-revelation. Isn't that something that should be said in therapy? I mean, could you not have said, oh, it's a medical issue or something like that? Uh, are you saying that it's a good thing I admitted that or, or a bad thing? I'm saying there's elements of good and bad in it. Oh, good, good. You should be a politician. You're on all sides of the uh, map there. Andy, my job is to understand the broad spectrum of humanity. And you clearly exhibit that. A medical issue. Like that would have appeased her. I'm sick of lousy dates. Here's my note from the doctor. Well, I'll tell you this much. I am perfect in the beginning. I fall in love with me. I'm so perfect. I'm, I'm laughing at the right moments, listening at the right moments. Those first dates, I'm basically running for office. I pretend to be somebody else to hopefully get their vote. So how is your body politic responding to uh, your perfection? Well, you know, if she agrees to make it a regular thing, which I'm hoping, that means she nominates me. Then I have to start moving to the center and compromising. But winning their heart is like winning the election. Then I can hopefully start throwing out my campaign promises and doing whatever the hell I want. So Andy, this sounds like the beginning stages of a relationship, correct? It could be, but here's the thing, Dr. K. In the beginning, I'm so busy trying to be perfect that it can get harder and harder to top yourself. After a perfect Zoom, the next Zoom's got to be even more perfect. I don't want the dating curve flattening. I got to avoid the Orson Welles syndrome. I could peak too early, you know? Go from Citizen Kane to a bit part with Miss Piggy in the Muppet movie. You remember Orson did that late in his career? Yes. Well, he had a hard time getting financing for his projects. Unlike Miss Piggy. Based on our work together, what you probably know are my thoughts about perfection. What do you think I'm about to say to you right now? This is a perfect waste of time. <laughs> you don't have to be perfect. Yes. What do you think of that? Not much. Andy, sometimes a simple analysis contains profound truths. I don't think you need to pursue this quest for perfection. I think you're going to be more successful if you back off just a little bit. The mostly perfect guy, not the completely perfect guy. What do you think about that for a homework assignment on your next Zoom session? Okay. So I'm going to be taking notes when I stray into perfection that I should uh, be more of a jerk at that point and, and <laughs> lay back on the perfection. <laughs> No, I don't want you to go from perfection to jerky, just from obsessive perfection to slightly less perfection. But I feel like I have to be such a perfect listener, that stress and having to learn all about a new person. It's like studying all over again. I have to memorize all these new facts. You live in fear of getting the dreaded, remember when I told you? And you don't. So your only hope is that your nod looks legit. Because you can't say, I don't remember. Because I was too busy hearing myself think, I can't believe she's connecting with me. While I was listening to myself think and not connecting with her. You must have connected enough, Andy. Because it seems to me, if you're having two-hour Zoom conversations with her, this person's really into you. Nobody Zooms for two hours unless there's a strong connection. Well, I could have been exaggerating. It seems like two hours. <laughs> what? Andy? <laughs> remember the ground rules of therapy? Radical honesty? <laughs> you know what? A new relationship is like taking your act on the road to a whole other audience. An audience of one? Yeah. All your best anecdotes from your life are fresh material again till you hear the dreaded you mentioned that before has that happened yeah my life story is already in reruns with her <laughs> i need to get another life i'm still wearing different clothes on our zooms you know i haven't gotten to the shirt reruns yet and i've talked about this before you know all those relationships women talk about that didn't work out before with other guys dr k what are the odds i don't have the same flaws that could be future deal breakers she doesn't know about yet if she's making a true connection with you she will overlook those flaws because what you bring to the table is so much more than your normal human flaws well, what are they
superhuman flaws? <laughs> that does wonders for my confidence. Maybe you're my kryptonite. <laughs> I'm talking about your humanity, Andy. Your willingness to interact with her, your capacity to give her a chance. After all the frustration of dating after 20 years, you're still in the game. You're still trying to make a play. That's exciting. Well, I must like her because I'm starting to pull back the curtain a little bit and give her a preview of a flaw or two, you know, see if any are deal breakers. I figure it'll bring us closer if she knows the real me. Wow, it sounds like you're even getting beyond the honeymoon stage and getting into more of the real relationship. The honeymoon's over already? I didn't even get to skip with her in slow motion through a field of daisies. I'm talking about a deeper connection, Andy, where we celebrate our relationships that include imperfections. Hmm. There's no need to be obsessively perfectionistic about your flaws. Our flaws are part of who we are, just like our assets are. Acknowledge them, appreciate them. All right, I'll acknowledge them. When the elevator arrives at the garage and another car is pulling in, I rush in and hit the button before they have time to park and head to the elevator. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What's going on there? I do send it down, though. A lot of people don't send it down. I immediately put the key in and send it back down to the garage so they don't have to hit the button themselves to have it returned. But I prefer a solo uh, ride. Yeah, I, I was thinking you just don't want to share your uh, elevator space with another human. Because they're usually busy texting in their own little bubble. Here's another flaw of mine. I agree to terms I'm too lazy to read. You know that big pop-up window you're supposed to check comes up? I could be agreeing to join the Taliban for all I know. I have a thought about what you're talking about. In therapy, Andy, we talk a lot about reframing, renaming perceived negative aspects of ourselves into something more realistic. I wouldn't even call those flaws. I would call them, at the worst, quirks. I like quirks better than flaws. Yeah, we all have them. I'm sure your friend has them. Uh, well, I'm trying to avoid any recognition of flaws at this point. I still need to fantasize about the impossibly perfect woman. Listeners? This is where the patient is starting to come to grips with his own realization that perfection is impossible. I feel like a fly on the wall in my own therapy session. Don't be afraid of letting her get to know you. When they think they know me, hopefully they like me. But when they really know you? What about when they really know me? I mean, you never see that wormhole in the supermarket apple till you take it home. Must be a life metaphor there somewhere, right? Letting her get to really know you and you her presents more opportunities than barriers. You know something? I complain about feeling invisible a lot, especially in LA. Maybe I want to be invisible. You know, a relationship is a mirror on me. Maybe I don't want to show him the real me because I don't want to see my own reflection. I think you're showing another insight into your own mental processes. Like there's an upside to invisibility. Maybe. If you run a red light at an intersection with a camera there. <laughs> you know what I do care about? Personal growth? Human connection? The meaning of life? Lazy language habits. Like when people say, like, 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 I'll save that rant for another show. Like when people say, I could care less. Because what they really mean is, I couldn't care less. But in this case, Dr. K, I really do mean... I could care less. The amount I care to hear about another royal birth. The countdown to plopping out a future inexplicably hallowed human by a present-day inexplicably hallowed human. I could care less. The amount I care to watch Anderson Cooper ever again hack on another sip of tequila on New Year's Eve. I could care less. About watching Andy Cohen's endless repartee leave Anderson mirthfully speechless on New Year's Eve. And about watching their CNN buddies, Don Lemon and Allison Camerata, toss their news authority hats <laughs> to don their self-absorbed New Year's Eve party thrower hats. Which is less than the amount I care. Whether or not the slice of pizza the infamous New York subway rat dragged down the stairs gave him heartburn. Wow. That was quite a therapeutic rant you went on. Feel better? Yeah, I do. Thanks for asking. That's because I care. I could care less. <laughs> Very good. No, I mean, I like CNN. I like Allison Camerata. I like Anderson Cooper. I like Don Lemon. But come on, if you're the most trusted name in news, I don't remember Walter Cronkite on New Year's Eve. Good evening. I'm here with my buddy, Eric Severide, and I'm about to down a shitload of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it is. Jay Leno was nice enough to call us to personally suggest this man was neurotic enough for our show. You are the perfect guest for the neurotic vaccine. You don't even know that yet, Andy. <laughs>
This could all fall apart. At the end of this, you could say, you know, Elon was the worst guest we've ever had. Just my answer alone makes me the perfect guest that I'm already worried about failing. I need this neurotic vaccine. Sorry, go ahead. And good news for your career. There is no vaccine for that yet. Thank God, because neurosis is a part of Judaism the way complaining is. And I like to call myself a professional complainer because if you think about it, comedians, we just get paid to complain. Dr. K, do you take my complaining about your therapy less personally now? I've accepted that as part of the therapy. So I know that going in. Well, here's my theory about therapists because I'm so glad that you have Dr. K on because the reason that there's, people always ask me, why are there so many Jewish comedians? We get paid to complain. The ultimate dream Jew job is to complain and then get a check at the end of your complaining. The only thing that Jews enjoy more than complaining is arguing. That's why there's so many Jewish lawyers. Because ah. all these young law students, they get into law school and they're like, wait, 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 let me get this right. You're telling me that all we have to do once we get a job is show up and argue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And wait, 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 wait. And whether or not we win or lose the argument, we still get paid. Yeah, and, and get this. You're going to love this part. You also get to file a complaint. <laughs> there could be nothing better than complaining, arguing, getting paid. This is really the best. And that's when it hit me. If that's the best job for a Jew, what is the worst job? A therapist. <laughs> One after the other people show up to your office and complain to you about their crappy lives. And it's not like as a therapist in the middle of it, you could be like, oh, wait, you think you have problems. Listen to this. I used to complain when I was younger, but I eased my way out of it through years of therapy, self-work, education, because I realized it wasn't working. It didn't contribute to a healthy lifestyle. And I could never turn it into something funny like you and successful comedians, because you start with complaining, but you turn it into something else. I think you probably agree with this. Andy, you probably would too, is that what you guys do is you make the personal universal. I like that. I have a bit that I talk about when my wife says things like I'm not in the mood and I say, that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't force anybody to do anything, but I do try to make a little case for myself. So I'll say, okay, honey, you're not in the mood. I understand that. But just so you know, happiness has the word penis in it. <laughs> so it's okay. I didn't mention. So does unhappiness. Why do you keep reliving this part of Elon's interview? Just making sure I didn't leave anything out. What's done is done. Can we go back to it now? All right. And she looked at me and said, that's fair. But just so you know, vagina has nah in it. <laughs> Our mutual friend Jay Leno. The weirdest thing now is being friends with Jay when all of a sudden the phone rings like, hey, Jay, oh, this is good. You about this? You about this? And he's just doing <laughs> jokes to you. He's testing out material. You got him down. He's all about the jokes. He'll just call you and just go, do you, you like this one? Let me try this one out. Okay. You got to do your impression of another filthy rich guy, the king of all media, Howard. Uh, well, this is very exciting. Let me tell you something. Uh, this Andy Cohen, uh, he is the straight Andy Cohen, Robin. <laughs> I'm also the straight Andy Cowan, whose name has been mispronounced my entire life. I know, it is Andy Cowan, but uh, I love it, Robin. Oh, that's good. See, there's your rock. <laughs> I love doing Howard to Howard. That's like when he invited me on the show, I did a sketch, I was Howard. Or getting to do J for J. Yeah. You know, getting to do any impression for the guy. I did dueling Jeff Goldblum on a late night show where, uh, uh, yes, 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 where it's, it's Jeff Goldblum talking to uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, and it gets very confusing. Who's the real Goldblum? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, yes, yes. So doing the impression with the actual person, that is like a treat. Can I share with you my first impersonation of a celebrity in front of a celebrity? Please. In the last year of his life, I did Jack Benny for Jack Benny. Wow. How did that go? I talked about this in my book. At Valley Forge Music Fair, where he'd been playing his violin with a symphony orchestra, looked ageless. The concert is ending. My sister and I sneak backstage. He walks backstage, looking a little more like an 80-year-old guy. Yeah, I'm in my early 20s. I'd done Jack Benny my entire life as a kid. I'm nervous. And I go up to him and I say, well, finally, I get to see the real Jack Benny. I haven't done him in so long. It's hard to do. Hard to do? That was perfect. Wait, Andy. One, one second, Andy. That was perfect. Wow. Coming from you. Oh. Meanwhile... 
He didn't respond to me. You know, he was addressing other people. I was a little crushed. And my sister's so overcome with emotion, she starts crying and she kisses his cheek. And he takes a beat and he looks at me. He goes, do you want to kiss me too? Oh <laughs> my God, is that great. Andy, I got to ask you this. I know it's your show, but I got to ask you this. I've never met a person who could just do one perfect impression. And that was perfect. Who else do you do? Ah, I used to do a lot of the old veterans. Sinatra, Walter Cronkite, did him earlier. Merv Griffin. I did a time-released impression for Mike Wallace and the whole 60 Minutes gang in six minutes. A comedy send-up of 60 Minutes. That won a now-defunct Cable Ace Award for Showtime. Love that. Mark Harris, my fellow producer. I know Wallace and the rest of them saw it because the show's creator, Don Hewitt, sent me a really nice note. Give me some Wallace. I gotta hear Wallace. Okay, let me throw in a little tongue-ticking. <laughs> Few signs in recent memory have garnered less respect than the ones we all come upon at supermarket checkout counters with a familiar phrase, 10 items or less. For over a decade now, this so-called restriction has been more and more loosely enforced and oftentimes entirely ignored. And who's willing to claim responsibility for this legal and moral dilemma? Well, if you think it's the supermarket cashier, think again. Oh, I love that. I freaking love that. You are amazing, Andy. Wow. Coming from you, Elon, that is high praise. No, I stink. Dr. K, I think I found my new therapist. <laughs> And now for our part one final highlights, session five on aging and a special visit with Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary, where I get to pitch him in our own Shark Tank. If wine and cheese can be finer with age, why not you? Uh, I'm not as enjoyed at parties. Okay, boomers. When we were kids, we didn't go, okay, the greatest generation. Forget boomers. We should be called boomerangs. Toss us away, we always come back. Really liking what you just said. We always come back. I'm not ready to leave the stage. I've got better if used before 2005. My freshness date is still good. People can use me now. Stop that. Is that what they gave you the PhD in? <laughs> That's what's called directive therapy, Andy. That caught you off guard, didn't it? I didn't realize the intricacies of psychology were so nuanced. <laughs> I'm all about nuance, Andy. <laughs> this is kind of a nuanced cartoon I once wrote where I got to vent about age. Smiling older guy with wings on a cloud telling God, being a ghost isn't such a big adjustment. Caption, why God makes you invisible after you turn 50. <laughs> well, we may not be young kids, but that doesn't mean we can't hang on to a little bit of that inner child, the parts that still celebrate life. During the shutdown, I kind of tried to conjure up my inner child. I watched old Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore show reruns for comfort to maybe feel as young as I was when they first aired. Well, it was a noble effort to uh, capture some of that magic with a timeless show like that. Till they get to the commercials. Hearing aids, catheters, burials, cremation. Yeah, thanks for killing that illusion. You know what my final wishes are, Dr. K? Not dying. I can't really help you there, Andy, but I can't <laughs> help you to adjust to the inevitability of dying. Meanwhile, my connection with the outside world is on life support. You look at those old shows, people popping into each other's homes all the time. We grew up thinking that was normal. People I know don't even feel like Zooming anymore. Technology can connect us more, but there's a growing isolation and disconnect that can accompany that. You know what's horrifying? Catching something you once watched that really hasn't aged well. Like Father Knows Best, that's so moldy and antiquated. And to realize we're old enough to have actually once considered it entertainment. And how lily white everybody was. Well, as Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow echoed when they visited us, it was a very different time back then. I've always said, people are like M&Ms. On the outside, they may be different colors, but on the inside, they're all the same. Except some are nuts. <laughs> I always like that one. Andy, you have the energy of a young person. The verve, the excitement, the, uh, the inflection. If I told you that you look better now than you did 10 years ago, what would your thought be? Uh, your cataracts have started forming. <laughs> uh, I've been informed by my visual specialist that they have not even appeared. You know, Ringo is 82. Beatles song titles have a whole new meaning now. I want to hold your hand for support. <laughs> If I fell, I'd break a hip. I'm so tired. Duh. I'm only sleeping. Oh, that's a relief. I thought you were, again, 
See, I'm being ageist here. Good catch, Andy. Really showing some self-knowledge, some self-reflection, and maybe even a little insight. Well, I don't know how insightful this is, but uh, the only time people say, God bless you, after you sneeze or hit 90. When an old guy sneezes, it never ends. <laughs> you may have just crossed over from insight to wisdom. You know what's depressing? Nobody will ever again be able to tell me I'm wise beyond my years. At this point, beyond my years, there's a guy with dementia. <laughs> hey, has anyone ever told you you're wise beyond your years? Yeah, I guess when I said nobody will ever again tell me I'm wise beyond my years, I meant nobody will ever for the first time tell me I'm wise beyond my years. <laughs> you know what I miss hearing? You have your whole life ahead of you. Remember? It was like a consolation prize. I know you're disappointed. You'll live. You got your whole life ahead of you. Whole life of disappointments to come. Cheer up. Now I got a quarter of my life ahead of me, if I'm lucky. The lousy quarter. And all those disappointments are behind you, and you, you can look forward to a more enlightening, exciting quarter. And I'm going to help you get there. You know, only in the movies is the last quarter an exciting quarter. If my life was a movie on the big screen, I would have probably walked out by now. Now, why would you say that? Hope. Disappointment, hope, disappointment. Boy, this flick's repetitive. Get to the dreams coming true part already. You've had dreams come true others only dream of. Maybe you're too close to your own movie to be objective. Andy, one sign of mental health is the ability to hold two seemingly contradictory emotions at the same time, happiness and sadness. And I think today you've proven that. So we're making progress. You're right, because uh, I'm positive this has been a negative experience. <laughs> I love the passion, not necessarily the content. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my education didn't prepare me for life. Instead of trig and all those other useless math courses, they should have taught us how the years add up, you know, how fast it all goes. You know, back then, we thought boomers would stay the center of the universe, not become a punchline. You're really sensitive to that. How to coexist with a culture that's moved on. I mean, I could use that lesson a lot more than the square root of X. So getting back to no longer being a part of the conversation, that bothers you? Yeah, well, if they're talking about me behind my back, I don't want to be part of the conversation. <laughs> but the ephemeral nature of all our lives, it's, it's pretty shocking. Mm, ephemeral, that's a, that's a pretty big word. I might have to, uh, I don't think that was in my PhD program. Stop that. It was the last of your uh, education. Yeah, basically, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the education you received was pretty ephemeral. <laughs> When you look that up, you'll realize that makes sense. <laughs> I guess that would be my homework for the session. You know, Andy, intelligence is also about knowing what you don't know. That takes years of experience to grasp and truly understand. As kids, we're concerned about what we don't know for the next test, as opposed to the big lessons of life, the big test. Yeah, schools should have taught schmoozology. I, I was never a good schmoozer. I'll bet there are a lot more successful, marginally talented, but effective schmoozers than there are successful, legitimately talented, ineffective schmoozers. Are you making a case for developing your schmoozing capacities in the next quarter of life? If I don't have to leave my apartment. <laughs> that might be textbook ineffective schmoozing. There should have been a textbook on suckology. I would have signed up for that class. You know, how to make things suck less. These are relevant courses, Dr. K. They're, they're, they're extremely relevant. It's hope and problem solving and stuff to work on. One seventh of my life sucks. Because on Sundays, I still get back to school-itis, speaking of school. One seventh of the week is for subconsciously dreading the next day. I once wrote a story for Seinfeld where Kramer tried to avoid back to schoolitis, observing Kramer time, a six day week, 28 hours a day, no Sundays. So if one seventh of the week sucks, what happens the other six days? Well, Saturday's my favorite day of the week, but you know, if I obsess too much on how I hate Sundays, then Saturdays I'll also hate because I'll be dreading Sunday because Sunday is when I dread Monday. This could become a dangerous spiraling into dreading half the week. Future catastrophizing reminds me of what we talked about with Kathy Geisweit. We can't control future events, but we can control how we perceive them present day so they don't wind up controlling us. I watched The Godfather for the first time in years the other night. Brando looks young to me now. That was depressing. <laughs> and when Sonny Corleone, James Caan, was beating a guy to a pulp, for the first time in one of the greatest films of all time, I clearly spotted a fake punch. Never landed near the guy's face. Can't believe Coppola didn't cut around that. That sounds like a post-production note, Andy. I guess the editor made Coppola an offer he could refuse. I just get annoyed by these things now. You know what? The older I get, the more annoyed I get. I guess the challenge is to not become crotchety. 
I mean, I can understand. Get off my lawn is crotchety. I'm not there yet. But what about stop hocking loogies on the street like it's your personal toilet? Is that still pre-crotchety, Dr. K? Uh, it's on the spectrum. On the spectrum. <laughs> hey, one thing, though, I came up with to try to cling to my youth, I base age on the chill factor, or at least convince myself it's not bullshit, that if your age can still conjure up some connection with the cold, you're still relatively young. Explain. 20s, 30s, brr, cold, 40s, still chilly, 50s, that can still be unseasonably cool, 60s, getting a little more challenging now. Uh, in the spring, that's still sweater weather. It's mild up here in Portland. And you call yourself a therapist? I was wondering about your age focus in the therapy today, or what I would say is your age overfocus. I just can't help but be more aware of how precious time is, you know? I mean, I don't have enough time left to wait on hold. Your call is very important to us. A representative will be with you shortly. Later. We know your time is valuable. Rest assured your call will be answered in the order in which it was received. Later. It's important for us to spend as much time with our customers as possible. Your call will be answered in just a few moments. Later. Your amount of time on this planet is a finite one. We're working hard to ensure that whatever's left isn't spent waiting for the next representative. Later. We know you have better things to do than waiting on hold while putting your bladder on hold. Later. Your call is very important to us. A representative will be with you shortly. Wait. You said that already. I know that one's bullshit. I see you're still getting annoyed by the persistent everyday normative indignities of everyday living. Boomers don't have time to wait. Screw the catheter and hearing aid commercials. Sell us boomer berries, strawberries with those green parts of the top already carved off. Well, there's so many tremendous ideas in what you said, Andy. Save us time from carving off every green thingy. I'd look up what they're called, but I don't have the time. I'd like to incentivize you to use that to further your mental health and your growth and move from problem identification to problem solving. You know what I want to do when Mr. Wonderful gets here? I want to enter the tank and pitch him opportunities to invest in me. You need to invest in yourself, Andy, whatever age you happen to be. Self-confidence and self-esteem are ageless. Well, here's a product that would give boomers a lot more self-esteem and confidence. There's got to be some money-making way to convince millennials and Gen Zers they need unsmooth necks. <laughs> uh, how are you going to do that? We need to teach them that smooth necks are boring. You know, if the folds on Disney Concert Hall are considered beautiful, why not necks? When you're a kid, you want to be a young adult. The fashionistas should condition young adults to want to be old adults. Make them feel uncool unless they're wearing multi-folded turkey neck add-ons. Beautiful silk old neck facsimiles that safely wrap around the boring smooth necks they have now. And then ads would diss boring smooth necks, and young adults would look forward to the day they can finally toss the artificial folds like a learner's permit or training wheels and show off their full-fledged, naturally beautiful, multi-layered necks. This is one of the most positive exuberant statements you've ever made since I've known you. You're, you're reinventing the neck. This is an <laughs> argument for naturalism. Get rid of that phony nonsense. Be yourself. Andy, what's come over you? Oh, I guess it is an argument for naturalism because I was going to uh, refute that by saying no. Eliminate the naturalism that young people have in terms of their smooth necks, but you're right. It's all towards the goal of celebrating the naturalism of the eventual old neck. Phenomenal, Andy. It's genius. Am I wise beyond my years? If you were 20 years younger, yes. <laughs> Well, you know, after another week of pushing my own pebbles up the hill, realized hopes, dashed hopes, rejections, sorry, Dr. K, I get my real therapy from Shark Tank. Thank you. It is such a vicarious thrill every week watching hopefuls pitch to you guys. I mean, we thought in the first three years, nobody watched the show except the cat and the dog. That was it. And then the economy changed. We went through a crisis and entrepreneurship started to look pretty appealing to people. And Shark Tank just exploded. And we never looked back. I mean, it's remarkable what's happened. All the jobs that the show's created, all the millionaires we've created, all the great products and services. We've sold billions of dollars with the product. It's just the most interesting gig you can have. You never know who's going to walk through those doors. We've all heard about irrational exuberance. To that extent, can investing become neurotic? It's an interesting debate because some people consider day trading investing and they just love the rush of almost gambling like day trading. That's not really investing because the strategy with investing is to stay long over the long period of time where the markets generally make you six to 8% a year. We've been doing that for over hundred years. There's no guarantee that any one time that it'll continue to do that, but it has so consistently for so long that that's investing. You put it aside, you put it in the S&P 500 or something, you forget about it. You wait 40 years, you made a lot of money. You always seem to have it together, but in what ways might you, Kevin O'Leary, be neurotic? 
That's a good question. You know, I used to be neurotic about trying to control things I couldn't, and it put a lot of stress on me. I'm just being serious about it for a moment. But now I don't try and spend any time or don't spend any time worrying about things I can't control. That way I got a lot more energy put into things I can control and they become much more productive. So, you know, if something happens that was out of my control, I don't sweat bullets anymore. I say, yeah, what can I do? Nothing. I don't care. I'll pivot around it. Andy, you should learn from Mr. Wonderful. What? Don't worry about things you can't control, like age. How about you bringing up age? Can I control that? <laughs> pivot, Andy. All right, I'll pivot to this. When you first landed Canada's early version of what later became Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, and you asked about the money, how do you react when they first told you you'd be forking it out? I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I was working in London, England on a show called Project Earth for Discovery Channel. And uh, Mark Burnett called me up from Santa Monica and he wanted to have breakfast the next day. He said, I got some tickets waiting at the airport for you. Why don't you just fly over for a day? I said, I'm in the middle of shooting a show, Mark. I'm not going to fly from London to LA. He said, why not? I got great tickets for you. You just sit there, sleep for a while, we'll have breakfast, you fly back. I thought it was so crazy I did it. And so when I got there, he said to me, look, we're looking for a real asshole on this show. <laughs> called Shark Tank. We need the asshole and you're the best asshole I know for this. You have to be an investor. And the next day we did a, a trial in the morning before I flew back to London. We did sort of a pilot shoot and I met Barbara there and Damon. Lori was supposed to be on there, but she in the last minute left and she came back two years later. Huh. There was another guy, Kevin Harrington. Anyways, oh yeah, an early shark. Yeah. The Pete Best of your fat body. Exactly. And, and we, uh, we shot this pilot and the show got picked up and we never looked back. Have all those years on Shark Tank made you a smarter investor? Well, here's the other thing I've learned because I have all the data now. I'm doing this for so long. Let's say you do 10 to 15 deals a year and you're pretty sure when you're doing them which ones you think are the higher probabilities of winning and others maybe not, but you take a flyer or the structure is something you like or the product is something you've never done before and you want to try it. There's always a reason that you do that deal. You look at the portfolio at the end of the year and you say, wow, you know, I got 11 or 15 great deals here. I think I think this one's going to be a big hit. That's never the case. Huh. That never works out that way. What happens is it's the crappy deal you thought was junk that you just did a flyer on that ends up being a hundred time winner on your money. You know, it's sort of a really crazy thing. So the only way to play this game is to have a big portfolio of companies. Because at any one day now, I've got about 36 of them that are active. You've got the euphoria of something great happening with one entrepreneur, and then there's catastrophe on the phone a minute later with something else. It's like a human drama, passion play, playing out every day. And you just have to ride with the volatility. And then when you invest in enough stuff, you're going to have a couple of big winners, and they pay for all the mistakes. Could you please explain to me why Mark Cuban in season three invested in a guy who drew pencil sketches of cats for people? Yeah, I remember that. Draw a cat for me. I thought that was the stupidest idea I've ever me seen. Too. But what I didn't know at that time which now I respect is the power of millions of people watching you on Shark Tank. So they see the product that you think it's insane, but 7 million people see it the night it airs and you sell millions of dollars of it just because it's like the most beautiful infomercial money you can buy and it's eight minutes of primetime television. And so after I saw that deal go viral the next year, I said, well, that's ridiculous. Then the year after that, I saw one called Potato Parcel where a guy ships a potato with your face on it. <laughs> And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. So I invested in that and it's made me a fortune. There's all these clubs on Facebook now. You send the potato, some people put them with little toothpicks in them into water and then roots grow and then they grow right through your face. It's like a zombie movie playing out. Spud of the dead. <laughs> and then they pay you $29 for that. That's the part I like the best. I remember every product I've seen on Shark Why didn't I remember to ask him if he remembered puppy cake, the birthday cake for dogs? Let it go, Andy. Would have been the perfect opportunity to tell him how I tracked down the entrepreneur after the show aired to tell her how she could have neutralized Kevin's argument that once a year birthday cake for dogs wouldn't generate enough sales. Stop reliving the past, Andy. It's over. Throw in a dog year calendar. Every seven and a half weeks, the dog is another year older in dog years. That's seven times the sales. Let it go. He could have said, why didn't I think of that? Kevin himself said he's learned to let things go. All right. Shark Tank has this visceral connection with people's desire to live out the American dream. Lightning doesn't strike very often, but you do see it strike on Shark Tank every once in a while where some crazy idea makes that family free forever. And we're very proud to be there to invest and help them do it. It's a show that's going to last forever because the American ingenuity and entrepreneurship and the ideas they bring forward never end. And every time that door opens, I say, why didn't I think of that? Okay, I have a few ideas. First into the tank is a way to feel young again. Hi, Shark. 
I'm Andy from Santa Monica, California, and I'm seeking whatever the hell you want to give me in exchange for however much you want of my business, as long as you leave me a little piece to eke out a living for my company, Best Years of Your Life, the sequel. As Thomas Wolfe famously said, you can't go home again. When you return to visit your college alma mater decades after you graduate, it's never the same. In fact, it can be damn depressing. But what if you could access our Best Years of Your Life Part 2 app? Perfect for a software pioneer like you, Mr. Wonderful, and order a small, medium, or large group of our young college-aged illusionists to dress up in whatever era clothing and hair matches the era of the visiting alumnus. Easy and cheap hires, students who attend the campus already. Turn them into hippies, polyester disco era, whatever your time in college was. Not a cell phone in sight. And they'd be trained to use your old catchphrases, relate to the issues of your day, and actually look at you as if you're still cute and hot. <laughs> You feel young again, and to make sure nothing destroys that illusion, they remove all nearby mirrors other than disco ball mirrors. So, sharp. Let's shake, shake, shake the cobwebs off billions of aging alumni and money out of their pockets. Well, wouldn't it be cheaper to simply go to Oregon or Washington, D.C., where psilocybin is now legal and just take some? <laughs> Tom Wolf was right. You can't go home. This idea sucks. Was that what you like to call a nothing burger? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that's definitely not your best. Let's see something else. Your face on a carton of veggie burgers. Nothing burger. Nothing in the way of meat. I'll take 2%. I can't stop <laughs> pitching you, Kevin. Does this happen to you in public restrooms? People are always approaching you with pitches. Yeah, I get a lot of pitches. And you know what's funny? Every once in a while, I hear something interesting, and next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Okay, it's still early yet. First of all, I'm going to go uh, shoot this in the barn, like you suggest. So hold for a uh, pre recorded gunshot in barn effect. There we go. <laughs> Next into the tank is a money-saving way to avoid embarrassment. Hi, Sharp. I'm Andy Cowan from Santa Monica, California, and my company is called Presto Changeo. I'm all for tipping, especially low-wage earners, but tip jars are everywhere now. Starbucks, bagel shops, moils. <laughs> Little joke there. In this economy, when it comes to giving customers watching their own pennies a break, there's got to be a better way. Presto Changeo, a tiny device featuring two buttons you hide in the palm of your hand. And as you center your clutched palm over that tip jar, hit button one for the digital sound of lousy service, or number two for good service, but not good enough to drop actual change. Yes, they may call you cheap for not leaving paper money, but it's better than thinking you left nothing. So, Shark, let's leave nothing to chance and go fake change the world. Wow, you're a scumbag. There's no question about it. It is so cheap. That is absolutely so cheap. Ah. I wanted him to like me. If a renowned asshole can like me, his word, not mine, anyone can like me. Like that Seinfeld episode where George needed Jerry's girlfriend to like George just because she hated George? Mr. Wonderful doesn't hate you. He called me a scumbag. He wasn't character. Like on Shark Tank? Yes. I've never heard him call anybody on the show a scumbag. Let it Let go. go. We'd be helping all those low-wage earners who spend their hard-earned money at Starbucks and make the bosses more likely to give their low-wage earners a bump in pay to compensate for fake tips? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly bad idea, but I give you merit for presentation, but not much. All right, hold for... <laughs> Next up is a high-tech way to feel good about getting dumped. Hi, Shark. I'm Andy from... Well, you know who I am. And my company is called Trading Up. How many of us are tired of getting Dear John or Joan by our ex-lover and wishing there was a way to make them feel worse than we do? Well, thanks to Trading Up, the cuter new lover app, now there is. Just let it copy a recent JPEG of you with your ex, and its proprietary app algorithm transforms the ex into a cuter version. More symmetrical face, slightly bigger eyes, better hair, body, and you into a still recognizable but more glowingly happy and healthy version of you, which you can send to that less attractive ex with a message, the new love of my life. Thank God you dumped me. It's a sharp. Let's capitalize on those broken hearts and create new heartaches for the bastards who broke them. Interesting. Oh my God. He likes it. He likes it. I'm rich. 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 I like it. F you money come my way. F you money's here to stay. Church you wouldn't hire me. F you left you left you. Women wouldn't take a flyer on me. F you left you left you. I mean, you know, it's fun. You see what happens with a lot of these apps that go viral. 
because they're so crazy. And that fits into the crazy app category for sure. No question about it. Great. I'm crazy. Let's get crazy rich. I think it's a bit of a flash in the pan sort of thing, but it could be interesting. And just that maybe people would have fun with it. Come, bite the bullet, Kevin. Bite the bullet. But I mean, you know, it's tough when you get when somebody dumps you, there's always the emotional downside. But you have to remember there's so many new fish in the sea. And this app would remind you of that. Maybe you should call it New Fish in the Sea. Trading up was the perfect title, Dr. K. Succinct, accurately describes the app's function. Did I have the guts to tell him? Plenty of fish is the name of a dating site that's been around forever. Reliving isn't living. I kissed up to him. New fish in the sea. I like that. Take any cut you want, Mr. Wonderful. I don't need F you money. I'll take F me money. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely put a royalty on it. I'd take all the revenue for sure. Wait, you mean I wouldn't get anything? Exactly. Look, you came up with an idea. Maybe you can get another one. I'll let you get something on the second idea. This was my third idea. I know my numbers, Mr. Wonderful. It's your entry level idea. Next into the tank is a modern way to feel less isolated. Hi, Shark. It's me. And my company is called Coming Soon to a Living Room Near You. We all know how the pandemic robbed us of that magical communal experience of going to the movies. With streaming on the rise, many fear it may never be the same again. But now, you can enjoy the isolation you've become addicted to and the outside world. To any movie you stream, the Coming Soon app adds pre-recorded actual movie theater crowd response tracks. Genuine laughs for comedies, oohs for action films, squeals for slasher flicks, heckles for Medea movies, coughs, <laughs> popcorn chewing, a few stop textings, sounds of people slipping each other and the deluxe version kicks the back of your sofa. So, Shark, let's you and I put the kibosh on movie going and make movie staying lead to this attraction coming soon to a piggy bank near you. Oh my goodness, you know, don't quit your day job. That's all I can say. Jeez, I think I'm starting to get a complex. Don't give another person's rejection that kind of power, Andy. Remember that advice, because I'm going to reject it. <laughs> One more. Millennial turkeynecks. Please, please don't give up your day job, please. Well, I really think the shark missed out today. He'll be sorry. No, he won't. He won't even know I exist. I'm going to keep going. Keep getting rejected. Keep going. Keep getting rejected. Keep going. Keep getting rejected. If you enjoyed this episode, it's free to subscribe and give us a follow on X at Andy G. Cowan. Well, once again, we want to thank Jay Leno, Kathy Geiswhite, Jerry Mathers, Tony Dow, Elon Gold, Kevin O'Leary, and our show's most important guest, you, our coveted listeners. We hope you join us again for session six through 10 highlights in part two. That's fine. But as a I, Dr. K, I'm incapable of hope. Well, when it comes to my progress in therapy, the real Dr. K is probably right there with you. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Come visit Andy Cowan, that's C-O-W-A-N dot net for a way to reach out and get my big book, Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars, forward by Jay Leno, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Black Rose Writing, and at the National Comedy Center in Lucille Ball's hometown, Jamestown, New York. Itching on the Highway of Life, opening theme by yours truly, instrumental performance by Marty Ripkin, the full tune also available on Amazon, musical stingers by Steve Crum, Lazy Day closing theme by the Bob Mincer Big Band. For your mental wellness, you can reach me at drscottk at psysolutions.net. Until next session, I'm Andy Cowan. And I'm Dr. Scott Kapoyan. The real Dr. K. For now, I see our time is up.